0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to you. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church and delighted to welcome you. We record on Wednesday nights. We have folks in the house tonight, but this is also Sunday morning's worship service. So those of you who are at home this morning joining us by way of Facebook Live or YouTube or whatever device you're finding us on, we welcome you. Thank you for being a part of this worship service. You are being faithful as well and we appreciate that. We know that some of you, your hearts are here. It is not your habit. It's not your way not to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And uh, I just want to remind you, uh, you're faithful. You're being faithful and this is what these times and days allow and require of us. So uh, anyway, God bless you. Welcome to you. Open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. I'm In the middle of a sermon series now entitled Relationship Goals, I'm preaching primarily to single folks, new rules of love and dating. I've gotten a little bit of pushback. I know some of you are thinking, why are you doing this, Pastor Tim? We're married, but you don't understand that about half of our congregation is not. About half of our folks are single, and half of the United States population is single, and, uh, and there's a real need for God's people to be speaking into the lives of folks in these stages of relationship, especially with the message I'm bringing tonight. Tonight is, is difficult for me in ways and will be difficult for some of you to hear in ways, but, but I want us to do this together. Tonight, today, the sermon title is simply, Why Not Just Live Together? Why Not Just Live Together? Whew. Can we do this? Can we talk about this? Because almost nobody talks about this. Almost nobody talks about this. The fact that now that that is simply the norm in our culture, that young people choose to, and old people, simply decide to live together either outside of marriage or in preparation for marriage, it just simply is now without any equivocation it is the cultural norm but it is not the biblical norm and we are God's people and we do not follow the world and we do not change with the times when God's word does not change so can we do this can we talk about this as a pastor for over 24 years I have counseled a lot of couples in preparation for marriage and increasingly through the years the couples when they come to me they are living together it's a sign of our times. In our congregation, at any given time, we have couples that are living together. Uh, when folks come to our church as guests, often they are living together. I'm telling you, it's just the cultural norm these days. And as I say, it's something that has changed so rapidly. And, uh, and as a church, we haven't done a good job of responding to the changing culture around us. So let's just, let's, let's do a couple of things first. I want to take you to a one verse from scripture, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, just put this down as sort of bedrock for us. Scripture says this, let marriage be held in honor by all. (laughs) I love the universality of this verse. Let marriage be held in honor by all. In other words, not just the Christian family, not just those who are people of faith, but let marriage be held in honor by all. That would be fantastic. And let the marriage bed, it's a euphemism, let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. We're talking about sexual purity here let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled for God will judge fornicators. That's a Bible word. That's a grandma word. A fornicator is anyone who engages in sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Any sexual relationship outside of marriage is a fornicator. Adulterers are also listed here. An adulterer is a person who is married but engages in sexual acts with someone that's not their spouse. So just understand, this is the the, the biblical sexual ethic here. Sex belongs in marriage, and purity is a Christian virtue, a a Christian ideal. And, And for all of us, purity is something we strive for. Whether you're single or whether you're married, we strive for purity. If you're single, purity means that you do not have sex with anyone. You're single, Marriage is God's good gift given between a wife and her husband. If you're not married, then you do not have a sexual life. Do you understand? You have a sexual identity, I understand that, but you do not have sexual behavior because you're a Christian and purity is what you strive for. So for singles, purity is no sex outside of marriage whatsoever. And if you're married, purity then is sex only with your spouse. I would think that these things are so basic but they're not basic anymore. When I tell people these things, when I stand for what I consider just to be basic, biblical, sexual morality, people look at me as if they've never heard anybody say that before because they haven't. That They haven't. This is not our culture anymore. Maybe there was a day when, when this was sort of how everybody thought, but that's not the world we live in now. That's not the world we live in at all. So understand, when it comes to sex, two things are to be held in honor by everyone. That's what the Bible says, but at this point, I'm just speaking to you as Christians. I'm assuming this morning and tonight that I have a primarily Christian audience. And so I just wanna appeal to you as people who love the Lord and who love his word and respect the authority of scripture, all right? When it comes to sex, two things are to be held in honor by everyone, purity and marriage, Purity and marriage. I, I, I suppose that the trend toward living together, the, the formal word is cohabitation. My grandma just called it living in sin. Nobody calls it that anymore. But one way or the other, that, that trend started in, in, in the 60s. It really picked up in the 70s. In the 1970s, the U.S. Census Bureau coined a term to describe, to be able to categorize the rapidly increasing number of people who were living with someone who was not a, a married spouse. If you were born now in the mid 90s, you're, say you're say 25 years old, In your lifetime, the number of people just living together now outside of marriage has increased by 50% just in in, in your lifetime, which is a a staggering, a staggering cultural shift. The the amazing thing is in our culture today, more than 60% of couples live together before they get married, if they ever get married, 60%. That's like what? Two out of three? And that's about the way it it seems to be in my office. About two out of three of couples that come to me now um, in order to get married, they're already living together. And I'll be really honest with you, that statistic doesn't change if it's a church couple. This is something that really has swept through churches like ours. I don't really see a difference much anymore between Christian couples and non-Christian couples. Two out of every three couples now live together outside of marriage. Here's the thing. In our culture today, the latest Pew Research uh, tells us this, that in our culture, 69% of the adult U.S. population thinks it's completely acceptable in every circumstance for a man and a woman to live together outside of marriage, 69%. Here's the other side of that. Only 14% of United States adults think it's unacceptable. 14% of adults think it's unacceptable, which is surprising to me in a population where 62% claim to be Christians and claim to be members of a church like ours. So 62% of the American population claims to be Christian and goes to church, but only 14% of the U.S. population thinks it's unacceptable to live together outside of marriage. So what this tells me is that in, in this regard, the United States church people are no different from the world, completely indistinguishable from the world. How did we get here and what do we do now? I just wanna call you back to God's word. I just want us to talk about this. Now again, I am presently counseling couples who live together. I have counseled couples who live together. Some of you may live together. I'm certain that people listening to me on Facebook Live or YouTube, you're living together. I'm not that pastor. I'm not the pastor that just stands up and preaches against stuff. I'm for Jesus. I'm for the Bible. I'm for for you. I love you. But I think it's very, very important in this regard to to try to bring people back to what the truth is. Because your life is at stake. Your happiness is at stake. Your Christian integrity is at stake. So let's go to Galatians chapter 5 and start in verse 16 and read together. Let's start here. And then we'll make our way through a, a Christian ethic of, of sexuality and living together. Galatians chapter five verse 16. Listen closely. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. We're talking about the ordinary Christian life. And if you belong to Jesus, if you're living the ordinary Christian life, you know exactly what we're talking about. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions, verse 18. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses, verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. In a relationship, the way you begin matters a lot. When a couple comes to my office to get married, I always just begin by saying, tell me how you met. Tell me how your story begins. I want to hear about how the story begins. What were your first impressions of one another? Tell me about your first kiss. Tell me about your first date. I want to hear about all of that because understand, the way a relationship begins often sets a course for the way that relationship will continue and ultimately what that relationship becomes. Does that make sense? That's why relationships matter. The way a relationship begins, that matters a lot. And this is why it's so important to consider how a relationship should begin, how a Christian relationship should begin. A lot of you who are Christian singles or who one day will be looking to get married, you need to just consider how that relationship should begin. Jason Dunbar and I have both been speaking about dating and what dating is about and how dating is actually a a process of evaluation. It's not just, you know, socialization. we are just going to go hang out, that's just being friends. Understand, dating is when you're actually looking for someone, trying to find somebody to share life with. And the way you begin, the the way you meet, the the way you begin to fall into habits together, this will set a course. It'll set a course for your whole life. And it's much, much easier to start right and and to start with with everything in place and, and to begin with the Lord. It's so much easier to start right than it is to try to fix things after they've gone off track. So, Again, I'm assuming that I'm talking to Christians. It's hard enough just to talk to Christians about this. I'll I'll preach to the world later, but I just wanna talk to Christians, all right? So understand this, as a Christian, you want to center your life on Christ. Duh, (laughs) you want to center your life on Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not an idiot. I know that a lot of people who claim to be Christians they are not centering their life on Christ. And, and, and in that regard, you really should probably examine yourself to see if you're actually a Christian at all. Because there's no such thing as a Christian who lives a life that is not centered on Christ. There's no such thing. You're something else. Because a Christian centers their life on Christ. And so you want to find someone else whose life is centered on Christ. So We're still talking about dating, but, but this sort of narrows the field here. Your life is centered on Christ, and you're looking for somebody else whose life is centered on Christ so that you can share a life that's centered on Christ. Make sense? You want to center your life on Christ? You want to find someone else whose life is centered on Christ? Because you want to share a life centered on Christ. Now, if, if this sounds strange to you, if this is not your aim, then I don't know if you should call yourself a Christian. Can I just be honest? If you have no interest in centering your life on Christ and the kind of person you're attracted to is is not a Christian and you're really not considering that one day you like to share a life centered on Christ, I'm really not sure that you should call yourself a Christian. I, I think you're probably something else because this is not extraordinary. This is just normal Christian life. It's centered on Christ. Now, what does that look like? What exactly does the life centered on Christ look like? Well, in Galatians 5, just a few things. First off, right at the beginning, verse 16, I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. So, you let the Holy Spirit guide your life, period. You're not following your feelings, you're not following the world, you're following the Holy Spirit. And you read the word of God and you listen to the spirit and you respond. If you're reading the word of God and you see that your life doesn't match what the word of God says, the word of God's not going to change. You change. You let the Holy Spirit guide your life. If you're in a relationship and you realize that it is not a relationship centered on Christ, you may have to end that relationship and a person who is following Christ would do that because they're letting the Holy Spirit guide their life. Now now second, second part of verse 16. I say let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. So second part, by the power of the Spirit, you resist doing what your sinful nature craves. And you may ask, well, Pastor Tim, like what? What are the things that the sinful nature might crave? Like, you don't know. If you, if you can't call anything to mind, there's a list for you in verses 20, 21 there. And I promise you, all your favorite things are in the list. Like, these are some of your favorite, I mean, I'm not joking, These are some of your favorite things. And, and you know, the top of the list are sexual things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures. These are some of your favorite things. Parties. I mean, you know, drunkenness. I mean, this is some of your favorite things. I'm I'm telling you, these are things that, that your sinful nature craves. This is fun. Sin is fun. I mean, I can say that. If sin isn't fun for you, you're doing it wrong. Sin is fun. And sin feels good to the sinful nature. And so there is a part of us that is drawn to the very things that would destroy us, the very things that God forbids. And so when the Spirit of God is living in me and I'm following His guidance, He's going to guide me away from all of these things that the sinful nature craves. Are are y'all following me? Are, Are you listening to me? So this is the normal Christian life. It's a kind of struggle, where I, I want to follow the Spirit, but I'm continuing to struggle against the sinfulness that continues to live in the bottom of this hard old heart. I'm being changed day by day by the power of the Spirit, but it continues to be a struggle w- with sin. So understand. So I'm down to verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, I love this, have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. That's really extreme language. Would you not agree? I mean, that is very strong language, which is to say, resisting your own sinful desires demands a radical determination and commitment to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, who himself was crucified. He died for your sins so that you could no longer be a slave to sin, but could live in the freedom of the spirit. This is the gospel. And you have to have a rather radical everyday determination to to see to it that the old person is crucified with Christ so that the person who lives in you is Christ. You with me? This is the ordinary Christian life. I'm not telling you something new or something that's just for those of you who want to go to the next level. This is entry level, it's entry level. It's a radical determination, nailing. I mean, you have to put these desires to death. We're talking about all of your sinful desires, everything that you love doing, that you desire to do, that you know is forbidden by the Spirit of God. You have to crucify those desires. You don't celebrate them. You don't take pride in them. Understand, you crucify them, you put them to death with Jesus so that you can live a new kind of life. And the last thing, it's found there in the end of verse 25. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. You follow the Spirit's leading in every part of your life. See, this is the game that church people play. It's this game where you compartmentalize your life. You like, you, you, like, bracket it off so that you have a church life. And at church, you're one kind of person, but then you have your life life, your work life, your school life, your relational life. And very, very often, the person you are at church will be unrecognizable from the girl you are on a date. Understand? I mean, you look different in the choir, girl, than you do, you know, when, when you're, you know, getting jiggy with it at the bar. Well, I mean, whatever, you know. You're a very different kind of person. This is why so many Christians can, can claim to be people of the word and people of the spirit. And at the very same time, completely, completely accepting of, of lifestyles that the scripture absolutely forbids. We compartmentalize. We follow the Spirit's leading in the parts of our lives where it doesn't really interfere with what we want to do anyway. But if the Spirit's leading interferes with what we want to do, then we do what we want to do. This is devastating. This is devastating. When God's people no longer live as God's people, When God's people no longer stand for purity in marriage, I'm telling you, the world doesn't, but the world is the world. We don't expect them to love Jesus. We don't expect them to follow the Spirit. It's the world, but we're supposed to be believers. We're supposed to be different. We're not like the world. Except in this regard, when it comes to living together, when it comes to our sexual lives, we have sort of compartmentalized that out. We are much more like the world than ever before. And it's devastating. It's it's, it's devastating. Uh, Understand this. This is a long sentence, so stay with me. When you don't accept that what God says about sexual relationships is final, In other words, you see what the, I mean, it's right here. It's clear as day right here, but somehow you don't accept that. You still think it's okay for you, you know, to to look at internet pornography with the very same computer you're watching this church service on. Understand? You don't seem to have any issues with that. And this, isn't that just not a little bit insane? But you don't, you're not troubled by that. You understand, you really haven't accepted that what God says is the final word. You think it's open for debate or you think that somehow you know all of this was like back in the old days, but it's a new day. I don't care what Megan the Stallion and Cardi B wants to tell you about sex. I'm telling you that when you don't accept that what God says about sex relationships is final, then you're gonna make your own way going to sort of make your own way, and you're going to end up following the world and then your own unspiritual desires. You're going to follow something that just seems right to you. And the fact that most everybody you know lives together before they get married now, that just makes it seem normal. It absolutely just seems normal. And honestly, when couples come and talk to me, there was a time in my ministry when a couple would call ahead and say, you know, pastor, do you do weddings when a couple's living together? I mean, there was a time not that long ago when couples sort of maybe felt shame or or, or thought at least that the pastor might have a problem. But now they don't even think to ask. Because nobody in their life has ever challenged them. Nobody in their life has ever raised a question. And we're talking about some of your kids and your grandkids. Like, where were you? How is it that we never managed to pass on a biblical sexual ethic to this rising generation? How did we miss that? When we don't accept God's word as final, then we're gonna come up with our own way. Primarily, we follow the world. So now, we're in a situation where the overwhelming cultural norm is cohabitation. People just live together before they get married, if they ever get married at all. And here's the thing. In a situation where everybody accepts it and nobody questions it, it becomes really hard to confess the sin, something that doesn't feel like sin. Couples will typically say, you know, you know Pastor, we, we didn't really want to move in together, but it was just so convenient. And, you know, it, it's, it's financially just the best decision for us. It's so expensive to pay rent in two places. You understand? There are, there are all kinds of ways to explain this, to, to, to make it make perfect sense. You know, Pastor Tim, we share a dog. And, you know, we both wanted, you know, to be with the dog. You know, like, I don't make this stuff up, y'all. I mean, this is like real life. When you don't really feel like something is a sin, it's hard to confess it as sin. But that word confess, it doesn't mean feel bad about. (laughs) The, The Spirit isn't asking you to feel bad about it. The word confess literally means to just agree with. To to say with, that's what it means. So in other words, to confess sin is just simply to agree with God about what you're doing and if God forbids it, if God calls it sin, it's sin whether you feel bad about it or not. Does that make sense? And this is hard. I'll admit that it's hard. It's hard to be told that something is sin when you've never really even thought about it as sin. Living together outside of marriage, having sexual relations outside of marriage is sin. It's sin. You can't cancel that. You can't erase that. It is sin. So why is it sin? Why does God forbid this? Again, most couples, it it seems to make a kind of sense in in our day and age. Young people wait longer and longer before getting married. It wasn't a big deal for my grandma not to live with my grandpa because she got married when she was 14, y'all. Like, true story. She got married when she was 14. My mother got married when she was 19. My wife and I got married in our early 20s. Our son got married in his mid-20s. I'm telling you, it keeps getting pushed back further and further and further. So young people now, they're already on their own. They're typically finishing college, that they probably already bought their first house, started their first job, and then they start looking to settle down, to start a family. It's, it's at the end of things when we used to do it at the front end of things. So, so when, you, when you push marriage back so far, it's, it, it's not the same thing as kids coming out of mom and daddy's house. I get that. I understand that, that there's a, a logic to it. So why would God forbid it? Why would God put these boundaries around marriage and sexuality? Why? Well, the devil will tell you that God just wants to keep something good from you. I mean, isn't that the very first lie he told in the garden? And it's the only lie he's got. But he continues to try to tell you that God just wants to, he wants to suck all the fun out of your life. So God, and all the religious people, they're just kind of sticks in the mud, and and they don't understand sex, and they're just kind of, you know, pilgrims or Puritans or, you know, Amish, whatever. And so it's really, really easy to sort of, you know, uh, marginalize a a biblical point of view. It, It is not that God is trying to keep something good from you. If God has put a boundary around it, there's a reason for that. God never tries to prevent you from, from, from discovering something that would be a delight to you. God only puts a boundary around something that would be dangerous for you. So obviously, according to God's plan for your life, your relational life, God's plan for your happiness, there's something about cohabitation that would be dangerous. What would that be? Now, some of you think, Pastor Tim, now you're getting crazy. Living together can't possibly be dangerous. You know, now you're going to go off like some old-time preacher, you know, saying if you live together, you know, you're going to be condemned. All your babies will be born naked, and and your life's going to be miserable. No, listen to me. Let's think this through. When it comes to cohabitation, there are just some, some basic facts and statistics that you need to know. Despite the fact that nearly two out of three couples live together before marriage these days, do you understand that the divorce rate of those who live together first is much higher? Much higher than the divorce rate for couples who do not live together before they get married. The divorce rate is much higher. If you factor out whether or not they get married or not, couples who live together, they typically separate 80% of the time whether they get married or not. If you're thinking that this is a good idea, that, that this is you know, something that's going to strengthen your relationship, you really have to face the basic facts that that doesn't play out in real life. of couples who move in together, they separate whether they get married or not. But if they get married, their divorce rate is 50% higher. And the divorce rate for everybody else is already high enough. How would you explain that? Couples do not move in together because they want to somehow blow a hole in their relationship. The couples that I talk to are, 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 are good people, that they love one another, and they often honestly believe that they're doing something good. They often believe that, that this is actually good preparation for marriage. I mean, that sort of is a logical kind of thing, that if you're already living together, you, you learn whether or not you're compatible, and you learn how to share, and, and, and you learn how to, how to adjust, and, and you learn the roles of husband and wife. You, you get to sort of test drive. Before you buy. But statistically it doesn't play out that way. So I want you just to understand my heart. I love love young people. I love young couples. And and I love marriage. And despite what most people think, millennials and the new generation, they're not living together because they don't have a high view of marriage. They often have a very high view of marriage. That's sort of the paradox. They have such a high view of marriage. They don't want to see their marriage end up like their parents' marriage. They don't want their lives to end up like everybody else's lives who are divorced and and, and messed up. And so in their minds, they're trying to to sort of test the waters of marriage. However, you just have to face the fact that the decision to live together before marrying may be one of the most damaging things you can do in relation to your future together. The one of the most damaging things you do. That decision to move in together. Here's the thing. It's that word decision. I kind of put it in there on purpose because this is what's missing now, I can't speak for you, and I'm sure that there are exceptions, but, but this is sort of t- to speak generally. When you ask a typical couple that's living together, describe your, you know, how did you all decide to do that? What was your process for deciding to, to move in together? You know what they typically say? You know, we, I don't think we really talked about it much. It just sort of happened. You know, they don't decide. They slide into it. In other words, they'll say something like, well, you know, I was already over at her house four or five nights a week. And, you know, and most of my clothes are over there. And, you know, I, my, I have my toothbrush at her house and, and we, we share a dog. And, and so it just made sense. You know, we just moved in together. understand, there wasn't a real conversation around it. The majority of couples who cohabit, they never talk about it. It just sort of happens. They, they slide into that. You understand what I'm saying? They just slide into it. They don't really talk about it. And what happens, and this is from experts who try to explain why these relationships fail at such a high rate. It's called the inertia hypothesis. Isn't that good? Inertia hypothesis. In other words, there's a kind of inertia. There's a momentum that picks up. They slide into living together and then their lives get very entangled. And whether it's working well or whether it's not working well, it becomes simply easier to keep going with it than it is to separate. It becomes very, very messy to, to, to move out. You may have bought a house together. You probably share a dog together in this day and age. You, you don't really know how to, 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 to unscramble the eggs, so this inertia just kicks in. And the same way you slide into living together, you slide into marriage, They don't even talk about getting married sometimes beyond the fact of, hey, let's get married. When should we do that? And typically then the idea is we'll do it when we can afford it. And then you plan this astronomically expensive wedding which you don't need. A marriage license costs $35 at the courthouse. I will marry you for free. So you can get married for $35. But you're planning a wedding. That will be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars these days. You're going to rent a barn. You're going to pay a videographer to give you a a video that's like three minutes on Facebook. And do you know how much money you're going to pay for that three-minute video on Facebook? But you want that video so bad. You want that video so bad. And, And so the same way you slide into living together, you just sort of slide into marriage and And experts believe that one of the reasons why the divorce rate for cohabiting couples is higher is that a lot of these couples, if they had gotten together any other way, they would have never gotten married in the first place. If they had never moved in together, they would not have gotten married. So maybe the divorce rate is higher because, honestly, that momentum kicks in. Once you entangle your lives together, it's very, very difficult to uh, disentangle yourself. I I, I don't know. And, And I'm not saying this to condemn you or anybody. Some of you have already lived this story. Now you're thinking, well, good night, Pastor Tim. What are you saying? We're married now. We're married now. What do we do now? Well, I would have a conversation about the way your relationship started. If you're believers, I would, if you haven't already, I would confess that sin and I would receive forgiveness from the Lord. There's forgiveness from the Lord. But then I would try to figure out, I would ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom And I would just try to figure out, now, how do we strengthen this relationship? If if we started off in in a way where we did not honor God and did not honor one another, how how do we strengthen? I mean, the Lord is good with second chances. I mean, you just, you center your life on Christ now. You center your relationship on Christ now. You you build from where you are. God is good all the time. But, but, But if you're living together, slow down. I said I'd marry you for 35 bucks if you got the license, and I'll do it on Monday or Tuesday, but, but, you know, slow down. But because here's the thing. Living together is, is really not a way to, to test drive a marriage. You think it is, but it's not. No matter how long a couple lives together... There are certain ingredients to marriage that are never a part of your relationship. It's, it's strange, but a cohabiting couple, they never really assume the roles of husband and wife. It's never really a marriage, strangely. If you don't believe me, just understand that in these relationships, that woman never has the power that a wife has in a marriage. You're sort of always still the girlfriend, Married men these days, write this down, honey, married men these days now spend on the average six to eight hours a week contributing to housework. (laughs) Six to eight hours. Yeah, I'm behind this week, ain't I? Yeah. No, I, I think yard work counts. No, the idea is that, you know, husbands can contribute, but you, you want, you, would you have any idea how much less a live-in boyfriend does? They never really, I, I know you think that it's, that you're practicing for marriage, but you're often not. There's a basic ingredient that, that, that makes marriage, and it's called commitment, and that's the one thing that your relationship does not have. You've not crossed that line called commitment, togetherness is not a substitute for commitment. They're not the same thing. Very often in our day, you know, there are women who say that this whole thing of living together has liberated women from the patriarchal, you know, structure of traditional marriage, that women are now liberated from those those cultural expectations of, of traditional marriage, and this sets women free. You do not seem to understand how anything works if that's what you believe. The woman living with a guy does not have the power in a relationship that a wife has. Something like 79% of women who are living with a guy, they say that they're living together because of love. You know what the men say? They're living together for convenience, for finances and sex. So and the woman often gets into this because she loves him. She, she lets him move in. She gives him sex because she's hoping he'll give her love. Do you understand that this arrangement is systemically designed to break her heart? So just a a, a couple of things. This is the last thing I just want to say. Uh, In in a relationship, there are often warning signs along the way. If you're a Christian man, a Christian woman, and and you get entangled with a person who's pressing you either into sex before marriage or pressing you to to let him move in, to let her move in, uh, understand, these are warning signs. This is not a suitable mate for you as a believer. Don't fly past the warning signs on the way to what you're hoping turns out to be love because you're hopeful. You want this to be love, and, and you're thinking, you know, it may, this is probably not right, but, but once, we, you know, once we get married, we'll get in church, and, and once we get married, then he's going to love me, and once we get married, we'll have kids, and, and so you're flying past all of these warning signs. He hasn't given you any signs of commitment yet. Here's the thing, couples living together, they both say that the reason they're not getting married yet is because they're not ready. But you know the secret? Both of them say that the reason they're not ready is that the other person's not ready. Like he says that the reason is she's not ready, and she says the reason is he's not ready. That's like an actual study. They both seem to know that the other person is not ready. Do you understand? These are warning signs. You don't fly past the warning signs on the way to which you're hoping turns out to be love because when you get there, it won't be love. It won't be. I'm talking to believers. I I wish the whole world would, would see the wisdom of what God says, and I wish the whole world would surrender to the authority of what God says. You would miss so much pain. I know it's hard. To see something is wrong in your life that really doesn't feel wrong, it makes perfect sense to you, but only because you really haven't stopped and thought this through. And as a believer, you really haven't had a conversation with the Holy Spirit about this now, have you? When it comes to relationships, the way it starts out matters a whole lot. The way you begin matters a lot. I know that you're hoping that this ends up with happily ever after. Do you understand? You really can't get to happily ever after unless you begin in such a way where you can receive the blessings, the power, the strength of God in this. God who himself is love and puts this love in your heart. You cannot have a marriage that honors God when you begin in such a way where you do not seem to have any regard at all for what God says. Just simply saying, God intends that you find delight, happiness, and satisfaction in marriage. This is what sex was created for. The world does not understand it. But we are not the world, we are the people of God. And we are commanded to live differently. Pray with me. Lord God, just bless couples. Bless them. Lord, I know that so many young women and young men, Lord, they they just don't know. They've never seen a a, a godly example that they see so few couples who do it right anymore. There's nobody out there that's talking in a positive way about saving yourself from marriage. So few people out there, Lord, who seem to honor you and and, and respect and honor others, Lord. It's a world where we simply do not see much of a light shining. But Lord, we are not of the world. We are to be in this world as light. God, help us. Help us as parents, Lord, to teach our children, to to, to be very intentional about teaching them what it means to to be a a person of of, of Scripture, to to be a man, a woman of purity, to to love Jesus first and not to in any way change yourself to please a man, to please a woman, Lord. Help us to teach our children, Lord, to, to center their lives on you, O Christ. And help us, Lord, as adults, to center our lives on you, O Christ. Help us not to let our feelings lead us away from what you have called us to do and be. Lord, there's nothing easy about any of this. I pray for couples, Lord, who have gotten off on the wrong foot, Lord. I pray that you would give them grace, wisdom, strength, mercy, love, the ability, Lord, to want to honor you, want to make things right, and want to honor each other. Give them strength. Lord, bless those couples who have started off, Lord, and now find themselves in a very difficult place. Will you show them what mercy is like? Will you teach them what love actually does, Lord, and will you show them your ability to uh, make all things new? Lord, love is not something that flows naturally from our hearts. Love comes from your great heart. So, Lord Jesus, draw us close to your heart that we may know love. Pray these things in the name of the Savior who died for the sake of love. Amen.